Open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, as we continue our study through the book of First and Second Samuel, books of, I should say. And uh, we're going to continue the story here of David and Saul. Of course, it goes for several more chapters, and we'll be in this for a couple more weeks. But I think this is starting to come to a head of Saul's true character and Saul's true motivation. And so we're going to see kind of what I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, the buildup uh, with Saul's pride and Saul's issues is really going to be displayed now here in the stories that we're going to read tonight. So uh, will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we adore you. Like, we love you. As we sing, Lord, we praise your name. We love your name. Like, we are in so much debt to you for what you've done for us. And so, Lord, tonight, um, just receive that adoration and that uh, love and affection from us tonight, Lord. And as a part of that, we want to spend time with you. We want to hear from you. And so, Lord, I just ask that as we open your word, Lord, that you would just speak powerfully through it, that you would um, touch our hearts into every situation that we're going through right now, Lord, that you would just speak by your spirit to us uh, through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says this, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's stop there. So we see this friendship. It's probably the greatest friendship uh, in all of the Bible beginning to take place, beginning to form between Jonathan and David. Now, if you remember, Jonathan was the son of Saul, but he was also a mighty warrior for the Lord. It was Jonathan's bravery a few weeks ago that we read about in starting the battle against the Philistines. When the Philistines were standing against the nation of Israel with an army as vast as the sand on the seashore, that's how it's described, Jonathan is the one who was bold and stood up and went to fight, and he sparked uh, the the, the chaos that eventually led to the Philistines' uh, demise in that battle. So we know that Jonathan is a man of God, a man of great faith, and a man who had a real passionate relationship with the Lord. So then here comes David into the picture. What has David just done? Well, it says as soon as he had finished, that's not necessarily the best way to start a chapter. Well, what had he had finished doing? Well, he had just s slew Goliath. Right? He had just destroyed this 
enemy of Israel. He had just conquered him in a way that was absolute and um, utterly obvious to anyone who saw it. And he did it with the Lord. He did it because he believed that God would defend his name, right? He believed that God would not allow this Philistine to talk down about the nation of Israel. So now enter Jonathan and he's like, man, who is this guy? And so Jonathan and David both become really good friends. I mean, it makes sense too. They were probably about the same age, though most people think that Jonathan was a little bit older. They were around the same age. They were, you know, of that same generation, so to speak. And they were both bold men of God who trusted God greatly and were men of action who actually carried out the things that God called them to do. And they were men who both had a real relationship, like a genuine relationship with the Lord. See, they had a commonality in their relationship with the Lord. Now, we're going to see a little bit later how this can go in a different direction, but here's the truth. Like, good relationships, great relationships, come when there's a commonality in the Lord. Like, great relationships come and, and are birthed out of people who love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then when they come together, there's joy in being together because you are both walking with the Lord. And this really applies to any kind of relationship, not just friendships. And in this case, it's obviously a deep friendship. I mean, this terminology that's being used, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And it doesn't just say it once, it says it a few times. Like, this was a passionate, deep relationship between two guys who the, the foundation of that commonality was the Lord. The foundation of what brought them together. See, it's, it's possible to experience the deepest of fellowships with someone else when Christ in you is relating to Christ in them. And it's not just in the area of friendships, it's also in marriage relationships, right? Like if your commonality in your marriage is your devotion and love for Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to have a better marriage than if it's not. If you guys are in two different places, that's why Paul commands the, the Christians to not be unequally yoked right? Because there, there is a joy that comes when both you and your spouse are seeking the Lord passionately together. And if that's the way that your marriage works, that's awesome. Well, it's the same in relationships between friends. It's the same in relationships between neighbors. It's amazing how little strife can come in your relationships if Jesus is actually the thing that you guys share in common. Of course, we have relationships with people for other reasons. We have relationships with people because we both work at the same company, right? So therefore, we have to see each other every day. And when we get bored, we walk to the water cooler and we stand at the water cooler. And it's kind of a forced relationship. Like, you know, I didn't choose you to be my coworker. Some boss did, but here we are together. Some people treat their marriage like that. Well, here we are. We're just doing things together. Like, we didn't really, <laughs> I mean, we had some choice in it, but, you know, we just kind of got stuck in this situation. You know, sometimes we have relationships because they happen to move into the house next door. And that can be good or bad, depending on how it goes. Sometimes we have relationships because we both like the same sports team. I don't know. But there's reasons that friendships form, but those friendships will always be superficial compared to a, a relationship that is formed and founded on the foundation of Jesus. Like relationships that are founded on the relation of Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, they last. They're deep. They're strong. They're passionate. And so here's two guys who love the Lord, and so they also love each other. And so 
Saul puts David in charge of some of the men of war, and the people rejoice. They're so excited. Look what it says here in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is the pinnacle moment where Saul's jealousy for David began to overflow from his heart. It began to pour out. And, and really, truly, from this moment on, Saul never gets a grip on this. Like from this day forward, like day, maybe two days after David destroys Goliath, Saul never gets a grip on this issue. He absolutely is filled with jealousy and anger because of what is happening. Why? Because David is winning the heart of the people. Not because he's necessarily the biggest and the strongest. Not because he's this great orator or this great ruler, but because the Lord is with David and the people know it. They know it. They see the boldness of David to face Goliath. They see that God has rested his spirit upon David and they rejoice in it. And not in a mean way. I mean, let's be honest. When women sing and dance in your honor, you are popular. Right? Like if you're walking around and women are just coming out of the cities to sing about you, you're popular. And, and King Saul is experiencing some of that. But the problem is, is that it seems as if David's more popular. I mean, think about it. It is kind of a mean song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're exalting David over Saul. Now, let's go back to the story. Who should have been the one who came out to face the giant? Should have been Saul. He's supposed to be the spiritual leader. He's supposed to be the one that God has called to rule the kingdom. Not only that, but he is the biggest and the strongest and the best looking. We're told that often when it talks about Saul. So why didn't he do it? Fear. Lack of relationship with the Lord. The spirit of God had departed from Saul and rested upon David. And so because he knows it, like he knows this. It's not like Saul's walking away going, whew, I'm glad David saved us. He's walking away going, now they're going to follow him. Now they're going to, the light is going to be on him. And so Saul lets the praise and the popularity uh, get to his head. And then when he sees someone else rising up, he gets jealous. See, Saul is beginning to see the kingdom slipping from his grasp. And this is exactly what Samuel told him was going to happen. Samuel the prophet said to Saul, God is done with you. He's taking away the kingdom from you. Your son will not sit on the throne. Like, you're done, man. You're over. And now the reality of that is starting to set in for Saul. And Saul is not ignorant. And he can see what God is doing in David's life. All Saul had left, think about this for a minute, 
The Lord had departed from him. Samuel had departed from him. All that Saul had left was the praise of man. The, 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 the attaboys from the people around him. And now that was starting to leave as well. As well. So it's interesting, like we can live a life of sin, we can live a life of rebellion to the Lord, and the Lord can leave us, and our, our good spiritual friends that are, you know, love us and care about us, like they can step away from us when we're not listening to them. Um, but as long as other people are giving us adulation and telling us you're doing a good job, it's okay, it's fine, then sometimes we can power through it relying on the word of other people who are sinners just like us. But when that starts to fade as well, it's hard. And so Saul's no longer receiving the praise of man. He's no longer getting his tires pumped, so to speak. And because of that, he's feeling a little deflated. Look what it says here, verse 10. The next day, so this is just two days later, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. You know the word that really sticks out to me there? Twice. Like Saul threw, two times Saul threw the spear. You would think after the first time, David would be like, you know what? Seems like you don't really want me here. I think I'll go. Two times Saul throws the spear. And David's like, I can't even imagine that. Like, you're playing guitar, and you're like, whoo, whoo, right? Like the Matrix. I mean, it's crazy. Saul's trying to kill David. But here's David playing guitar, playing the, the lyre again in Saul's house. I don't know about you, but I see that as a sign of humility. Here's David who just killed the giant. Here's David who just was put over the men of Israel, and yet he's still fulfilling the job that he has playing the lyre for the king when the, when the king is distressed. Wasn't that his job before all this? He goes right back to it in humility. But jealousy and fear is driving Saul. And when he sees David, he throws a spear thinking, spear thinking I'll pin him to the wall, kill him. And I got to be honest with you, like in this moment right here, if this story was different and it tells us, you know, Saul threw the spear one time, David dodged it, then Saul started to throw the spear a second time. David picked it up and he killed Saul and took the kingdom. We could teach a Bible study on that. We could be like, you know what? David was so humble the first time he let it go. But you know, the second time he stood up, he stood what was, for what was right. He fought back against the evil. He vanquished the enemy of God. And we could say, and then he took the throne that God had for him. We could do that. But that's not what David did. David continued to walk in humility and let God fight his battles. He continued to do what he was called to do and didn't take the situation into his own hands. David was determined to leave the situation in God's hands. Look what it says in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. See, David just lived the life that God had called him to live. 
He didn't get caught up in getting even with Saul for throwing spears, or he didn't get caught up in, you know, claiming what was his, because rightfully the kingship was his. Samuel had anointed David to be king over Israel. He had the right to say, hey, look, this is my gig, Saul. Like, you need to get off the throne. And he probably could have beat him. But he didn't do that. He was content to leave the situation in God's hands and not try to take the throne for himself. He was looking for God to take control of the situation, not trying to take care of it himself. I think that's important for us to think about today. Whatever situation you find yourself in your life, let God take control of the situation. Don't try to take control of the situation yourself. And we see it happen today, right? We see it maybe even in our own lives where it's like, you know what? Like, you know, this person wronged me, so I'm going to step up to them and I'm going to tell them exactly all the things that they did wrong. And I, you know what? You know what? I just have to say this. I just have to get this off my chest. Do you? Or can you just allow the Lord to be the one who fights your battles and say, as long as I'm doing the right thing, as long as I'm following what God's called me to do, as long as I'm walking in humility, as long as I'm in good standing with God, I'm going to let him be the one who controls these situations. I'm going to be, let him be the one who works and moves. And again, this is a promise that David had received that he's going to be king, but he didn't try to force God's hand or force Saul's hand to fulfill this promise. He just simply continued in humility. But as he did that, the Lord was blessing him because of the presence of the Spirit of God in David's life. I mean, see what it says. He was successful, verse 14, in all of his undertakings because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he came out, went and he came out before him. What did they love about David? He was a man of the people. He didn't, you know, wall himself up in the palace and think himself to be better than them and act like he was greater than them. He went in and out among them. He was part of the, 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 the group. And, and we see that that servant-hearted leadership style that David has, at least early on in his life, is, is really what helped him to win the hearts of the people. Yes, later on, he would build a palace and he would do some things a little bit differently. But early on in his life, David treated everyone with respect. He, he spent time with people. He didn't look down on them, even though he was probably, at this point, if not the most famous, one of the most famous people in all the land. He just loved the Lord and loved the people around him. I mean, that's really what he did, right? The Spirit of God was on him, and he went in and out from among the people. So I don't know if you remember, but uh, last chapter, when Saul was talking about what would the person get, or the, at least the people were talking about, what would the person get who killed the giant? It was uh, supposed to be like a third of the kingdom. It was supposed to be uh, no taxes for your family for the rest of their life. That's a great perk right there, right? And it was supposed to be to marry the king's daughter. So what happens in verse 17? Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, <laughs> Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now, what's happening here? 
Saul is obligated to give his daughter to, to David. And he says to David, you know, all I want from you is to be valiant and fight the Lord's battle. What is this in reference to? Well, in ancient times, if you were going to marry uh, a girl, you had to provide a dowry, right? Uh, you had to provide a, a down payment sort of, sort of to the father-in-law as a way to purchase her to be your bride. And, and there was all sorts of things that were involved in that. Um, and so basically, David, what he's trying to say here in his, um, you know, uh, humility, it's a, a humble statement that he makes about who am I and who is my father that I can marry the, the daughter of the king, is he's trying to say, I don't have the money to do this. Like, I can't give you a uh, you know, down payment on this wife. I can't give you this uh, thing. And um, so Saul is kind of acting high and mighty. Oh, just be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. That's all I want from you. But really, Saul had a wicked motivation in his heart. The wicked motivation in Saul's heart was, well, if he goes out to fight the Philistines for me, they'll kill him. I don't have to kill him. They'll kill him. Now, interesting that years later, David would use a very similar strategy to kill the husband of Bathsheba, Right? Years later, David would send the husband of Bathsheba to the front of the lines so that the enemy would kill him. Therefore, he didn't murder him. He just basically murdered him. Interesting. But this is what Saul's plan is. Okay, we'll send him out. The problem is David's too good at this. Like, all he does is win. <laughs> like, he just keeps winning, and, and no one can kill him because the Lord is with him. So when the time comes for Mirab to be given to David, instead, Saul marries her off to another guy. It's disrespectful, but David is showing humility in the way that he approaches the situation. And then this happens, verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now, this is um, not typically the toast that you give at your daughter's wedding. You know, well, you know, David, I'm going to give you my daughter because she's going to be a snare to you, so you'll die. Well, what does that tell us about Mikkel? That Saul thought his daughter would be a snare. Well, I mean, part of it could be just the act of being married can distract you and distract you from the things that you're called to be. But I think it's pretty clear from her attitude here and what we'll see later on in a minute that she was not someone who had a right relationship with the Lord. But she loved David. Why would she love David? Well, he's like the most famous guy, right? Like in all of Israel. And he's the one who's like, you know, really making the tabloids and all that stuff. Like she loved him and David loved her. But David, it seems, started a relationship with someone who was not equally yoked to him in their relationship with the Lord. We're going to see in a minute that most likely uh, this girl is involved in idolatry. She definitely does not have the same love for the Lord because in 2 Samuel, when David is returning uh, from, from, you know, becoming king, it says he danced in the streets uh, naked to praise the Lord, which uh, we don't have one of those ministries, but if anyone wants to start one, uh, we could. But like he's dancing in the streets naked and she sees him and she has contempt in her heart for him because she basically thinks he's making a fool out of himself. She doesn't see the, the beauty in what David's doing, that he loves the Lord so much. So 
understanding all of that, maybe Saul is thinking, you know what, she's an idolater, she's not that great. I mean, it's sad that he's thinking about that as about his daughter, but he's like, you know, if he's with her, she's going to mess him up. It's really sad and twisted. So, verse 21, Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. That's a lie. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And the Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged by the, of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Let's stop there. First of all, this is weird. It's a weird story. But Saul, Saul's like, well, I'm going to give you my other daughter and... Uh, and, and again, David's hum humble. He's showing humility. He's like, hey, I'm poor. I don't, you know, who am I to be marrying the, the daughter of the king? And then he says, bring me a hundred foreskins. Again, that's weird. Of Philistines. So David, what does he do? He goes out and gets 200. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. Um, I don't know whose job it was to like count those. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want that job because it says they presented him each number before the king. It's kind of weird. But, like, they're showing him, like, hey, I, I killed these 200 guys. Like, I am vanquishing your enemies. And when Saul saw that, when he saw that the Lord was with David to allow him to accomplish this task, not just 100, but 200, and he knew that the Lord was with David, he was more afraid. And then that, that line is just so heartbreaking in verse 29. So Saul was David's enemy continually. I think about how does David find himself in that situation? Like, I mean, let's be real. It doesn't say that, like, Saul forced his daughter on David. It says that David loved her and she loved him. You know what that tells me? Attraction should not be the primary determination of whether or not a relationship is good or bad. Like, you can be attracted to somebody, but not necessarily supposed to be with them. And David does make kind of a poor choice here. Now, it doesn't manifest itself till later, but he does make a poor choice in marrying this girl who Saul knows is going to be a snare. And so we have to think about that in relationships, particularly in romantic relationships. Just because somebody uh, is appealing to us and we like them doesn't mean that there's somebody that we should be with. We have to make sure that there's that commonality, like we talked about with Jonathan and David. There's that commonality of the Lord, that we want to serve the Lord together. We want to live this life following Jesus together. And if that's not going to be a part of the relationship, then no matter how much you like them, it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be what you're doing. 
But David finds himself in this situation. And so, verse 30, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should, sorry, verse 1 of the next chapter, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul, or to Saul his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So the end of chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 19, it tells us that David's name was highly esteemed. People started to have a lot of respect for David on top of his popularity and, and, and his, uh, you know, uh, fame. And because of that, Saul is boiling. He's angry. And he goes to Jonathan, his son, and to his servants and says, we got to kill this guy. I mean, what is going on in Saul's life? What is going on in his life where he is feeling this way? Well, again, it's him feeling the grip, his grip on the kingdom slipping. And it's him feeling jealous for the fact that the Spirit of God was on David and not on him. Now, why are we even in this situation? Isn't it all because Saul made bad choices? It's interesting how sometimes our bad choices can lead us to a place where we blame other people for them. David didn't take away the kingdom from Saul. The Lord took away the kingdom from Saul. David didn't cause that to happen. Who caused that to happen? Saul caused that to happen. Yet Saul is so eager to pin, literally with a spear, pin David for it, right? He's so eager to blame him. We have to be careful in our own lives that we don't do the same thing. It's easy for us to experience the results of our own sinful behavior, our own foolishness, or whatever it might be, and then in the results of that, try to blame other people for what happened. You know, it'd be like if you were a raging alcoholic, and, and, and then you get put in jail, and you try to blame the bartender. There comes a point where you're like, that's kind of silly, right? Like, you made those decisions. Like, yes, there's other people that might be around it or involved in it, but ultimately, you're responsible for your own spiritual state. You're responsible for your own choices, and so, so am I. And, and this is the thing. Saul's not getting that. He's not looking at this with a spirit of repentance, saying, Lord, what have I done? I'm so sorry. I see that you've now appointed David to be king, and man, like, let, how can I still be a part of what you're doing? Like, let me fit into the kingdom. Let me you know, have a role in this. Can I mentor David and teach him what it's like to be king? Because I don't know if you know this, God, but I'm the only king ever in the history of Israel, so if he's going to learn from someone, maybe it'd be from me. Like, Lord, can I still have a right relationship with you? Let me go to, to worship you in the tabernacle like none of that 
That's anger and malice and contempt and hatred towards David. Still not repentance. But Jonathan steps up and he stands in the gap and he mediates peace in this moment, right? There's wrath coming from Saul, not justified wrath, but wrath all the same. And it's coming from Saul. And so Jonathan steps up and takes that place as a mediator between Saul and David to to help protect David from Saul's wrath. And you know, I just think inside of that, I don't know if it's a perfect picture, but when I was reading this, all I could think about is like, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. But unlike Saul's wrath, which was not righteous, like the Father's wrath is righteous towards us, right? Like we have sinned and put ourselves in that situation where we should be separated from eternity. We should experience eternal judgment. And Jesus steps up into the gap and mediates for us, right? On the cross, he did that. And and he brokered a deal. Now this deal between Saul and David is going to be very temporary, like crazy temporary, like next verse temporary. But Jonathan steps up and does that. He's a peacemaker. And all I can think about is in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Like that actually should be a goal. Like people who have good godly character like Jonathan are looking to mediate peace rather than to goad on war. And sometimes we can find ourselves in a situation where we have an opportunity to step up and mediate peace between two parties. Maybe between us and someone else, maybe between two people that we know, maybe between family members, whatever. Like when we ever, whenever we have that opportunity as believers, as followers of Jesus, people who want to be like Jesus, we should take those opportunities to try to step up into the gap and to mediate peace. Why? Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? Like his ultimate goal is that one day the lion would lay down with the lamb. Like his ultimate goal is that everything would be brought under subjection, but that everything would would be living in harmony like it was in the beginning. Like that's God's goal. So Jonathan is a peacemaker in this situation to make peace, at least temporarily, between Saul and David. We should be looking for opportunities to do that as well. But you know what sometimes can happen is instead of doing what Jonathan did and saying, hey, let's Let's, let's talk this through rationally. Let's, let's make peace between these two parties. Sometimes we can stand on one side or the other and say, yeah, get him. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's right. You're right. I'm right. We're all right. They're not right. We have to be careful that we don't find ourselves. You know, gossip can, can kind of do that. It can slip its way into the church, right? And it can, and it can kind of fester. And then you have factions and That can happen in your workplace. It can happen in your neighborhood. It can happen in your family. You know, we don't like those people, so we don't go to Thanksgiving when it's at their house, and we don't do that. Whatever. You know what I'm saying? We have a choice. Whenever there's conflict, we have a choice to do one of three things. We can either ignore it, pretend like it's not happening, which normally we don't do. We can choose a side and fight a battle that's not ours to fight. Or we can be like Jesus or like Jonathan, who is a peacemaker. And we can step up and and promote peace between two parties that are at war. Now, I don't think that David is in conflict with Saul. It's Saul who's in conflict with David. And yet, Jonathan steps up and and is a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. But it doesn't last long. Verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. 
Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. Again! But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. David went back after two times that Saul tried to kill him. David went back and was playing the guitar again, the liar, for Saul. Doesn't that just show you that, that, that deep connection that David has with the Lord, that he could walk in that kind of humility and walk in that kind of love for someone who so obviously did not love him? I mean, that is another example of the heart of Christ-centered thinking. Like, peacemaking is part of who Jesus is and part of what the Lord is all about, but so is loving people who don't love you back, right? While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Like, like that, that love of saying, like, I'm going to love on you even if you don't love me. Even if you are against me, I'm going to be for you. And really, truly, we could say that throughout all of David's life, until the very end, he never really stopped serving Saul. Like, he, he never was disrespectful to Saul, though he had opportunities to. He never, you know, was all out in, in a, engaged in a war against Saul because he hated him. He always continued to respect Saul and to love him to the best of his ability, even up until the time that Saul was killed and that David became king. Like, this was always about David wanting to do the right thing, even when Saul was being ridiculous and throwing spears and so think about that. The next time someone's throwing spears at you in your life, just serve them. Have that humility to just do what David did, just to go back. Now, this is not to be taken in the wrong way. Like, hey, if someone's abusing you, you just need to take it because that's what Jesus would do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that sometimes we have to realize that people are flawed. And when they treat us badly, it doesn't mean that we reject them and run away and never talk to them again. Sometimes we have to outlove them, even if they're being unreasonable to us. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so it tells us that David fled and escaped that night. And this will be the last time that David really spends time in the palace until he's king. I mean, he's, he's at this point, he's separated from Saul. And this was kind of the last straw, or to put it more literally, the last spear. Look what it says here in verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And then when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, the fact that David's wife had an idol at hand to perform this, an image, it says in our text, but it's, it's an idol, tells us that she was not in the same relationship with the Lord that David was, right? 
she has an idol in her house that she's able to perform this trick with. I mean, it's, it's almost comical when you think of it, you know. She puts the idol in the bed and puts some goat hair on top to make it look like David and covers it with a blanket. And so when it comes back and it's reported to Saul, you know, Saul says, uh, this is crazy. Like, hey, he's sick. I don't care. Pick up the whole bed. Bring him up here. I'm going to kill him. And so we see, though, that this relationship between Saul and Michal is not great. It's obviously strained in this moment. But Michal is someone who's walking in idolatry. She's someone who's walking not in the same way that God had called David to walk and called all of Israel to walk. And so all of this happens, and Saul's upset with Michal. But look at, look at his phrase here in verse 17. Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? You know, David was only the enemy of Saul because Saul wanted him to be. David was only the enemy of Saul because Saul had chosen to make David his enemy in this way. And so we see here in verse 18 what happens. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told, all, told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. So David flees. He meets up with Saul, uh, Samuel, I should say. And he says, Samuel, this is what's been going on, man. Like, remember when I was a kid and you came to my farm and you like put oil on my head and said I was going to be king of Israel and the spirit of God came down on me. It was super cool. Well, I've been trying to live that out. So I went and lived in the palace with Saul and he's throwing spears at me, man. Like, this is not going well. And so Samuel and David link up and they're together. And this is where the chapter gets really weird tonight. Can I just be honest with you? Because it gets weird. Like, what's about to happen when you read it the first time? You're going to be like, what? And we're talking about it. And I'm talking about what I think it means, but it's weird. So I'm just prefacing it, okay? It's weird. Get ready. Verse 20. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again for the third time, and they also prophesied. Let's stop there. Okay, what's happening here? This is weird. I don't know if you caught it. So Saul's sending soldiers, messengers, whatever, sending parties, delegations, to go and get David to bring him back so that he can kill him. And every time the messenger group comes in, there's, a, there's church service going on. There's worship service going on. And the prophets are all prophesying, and Samuel is leading the service. Now, prophesying doesn't mean foretelling end-time events or something like that. It means they were speaking the word of the Lord. They were having a time of worship, <coughs> a time of praise to the Lord, a time of sharing the word of the Lord. And each time that this group of servants come in looking for David, the Spirit of God falls on them, and they also begin to prophesy. And then they don't leave. Like, they stay there. And then Saul's like, where did my guys go? So he sends another group, and they show up, and they're like, where's David? And then they start prophesying, and the Spirit of God falls on them. And then he's like, well, where'd they go? So he sends a third group, same thing. And then, verse 22, he himself, Saul, went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Siku, and he said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And when he went there to Nioth and Ramah, the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. 
And thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is weird. It's weird. First of all, it just goes to show us that God can do whatever he wants, right? Like God is not confined to anything. And uh, the way that God chooses to fight his own battles in this situation is to drop his spirit on people and like put them in like a, a prophecy mode and then they can't like rebel against him because the spirit of God's on them. I don't know. It's weird. But Saul shows up and the same thing happens here. They have this spiritual experience that stops them from doing harm to David. Now, it's, 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 it's weird and it's strange and it's a different thing because not very often in the Bible do you see the Spirit of God falling on people who are in rebellion to God. That's not usually how it works, right? Like the Spirit of God usually falls on people who are in obedience to God. But here God is using this spiritual experience to to shape and form what's happening here. Now, the spirit working in Saul and in his messengers, being active in their life in those moments, allowing them to prophesy, is not necessarily an indicator that God is agreeing with his actions. And that's what's important for us to know. And we've talked about this before. Just because God is using someone doesn't mean that he approves of everything that they're doing. It's not saying that, you know, because you could read this on the surface and say, well, you know, Saul showed up and the Spirit of God fell on him. And then God was using him to prophesy. I mean, gosh, I mean, I guess him and, and God made up. No, that's not what's happening here. So that doesn't necessarily, that the presence of, of the Lord working in someone's life does not mean that he agrees with everything that person's doing. And I don't know for sure, but this is just what my kind of take on this is. I think that this was a a moment, a time where Saul was once again grasping or, or getting a moment where the Spirit of God was on him to give him another opportunity to repent. I really do think this is what it was. I mean, think about it. We talked about this last week. The, the, the big key phrase of all of this story is that the Spirit of God departed from Saul and rested on David. And so here in this moment, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul again. Not in the same way, but it comes upon him again. Now, do you remember that what happened? I mean, the first time the Spirit of God came upon Saul, way back when he was not king yet, he prophesied with the prophets. That's what he did. He began to speak the word of the Lord. He, used, he began to be part of the worship service. He began to do all these things. And so, again, just like that, God puts the spirit, of, you know, the spirit on him again and allows him to, to, to participate in this prophesying. And we're not told it's false prophecy. So, I mean, it seems like the God is really working in his life. And I don't know if this is what's happening, but I just imagine that this is a time where the Lord is reminding Saul and, and trying to humble him of his sin and give him an opportunity to repent and to be humble for the way that he had treated David and for all the other things that he had Done Because look at what his response is in verse 24. He stripped off his clothes and he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. That would seem to be an indicator of repentance, right? That would seem to be some sort of indicator of uh, guilt or shame. And it tells us, thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. This is a reference from back before Saul was king when he was prophesying with the prophets. They said, is Saul a prophet too? Is he speaking for the Lord? Is he leading people in worship? Now, 
I don't know what's the deal with all of that. But what I do know is this. This, this, this part of the story is never mentioned again. Like we're never told like, and Saul came home and he felt really bad about what he did. So it, it becomes very clear because the next time we see Saul, he's out to get David again. That if this was a moment where God was trying to give one last time, one last chance to repent, if it's a one last chance to be humble, if that's what this is, Saul didn't take it. He didn't take it. You know, the Lord is patient with us. Not willing that many should, or any should perish, right? Like, he's patient with us. He gives us time. He gives us chances. But there is a point that comes where if you continue to harden your heart to the Lord, he's just going to leave you there. And that's going to be it. Not because he doesn't love you, not because he doesn't have affection for you, not because he doesn't desire for you to change, but because there comes a point where God says, I'm no longer going to push them towards the right thing. I'm no longer going to force them to repent or force them to make the right choice. I'm just going to let it go. It's out of really a, a love that says, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. I'm going to let you do what you choose to do, even though I know it's wrong. So I don't really know what's going on here, i got to be honest with you, but I think that this might have been a moment where Saul was giving one last chance to humble himself. And I think that the turn of phrase that really spoke out to me as I was thinking about that was this. You can either be humble or be humbled. I mean, that's, the, that's it at the end of the day. You can either be humble or be humbled. And, and Saul is not being humble, and he's going to ultimately be humbled. And it won't just be him. It'll be his family that experiences the, 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 the sin in his life. It's going to be the whole nation that's divided and experiences the result of Saul's sin. And I just want to say for you and for me, if we get to that point where God is giving us a chance to, to walk in repentance, to walk in humility, take the chance. Take the chance. Don't continue to harden yourself against the Lord. Take the chance to turn things around and to walk in the right direction again. Because you don't want to find yourself to a place where God has to say, okay, you've made your choice, now you have to deal with it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth in your word. And Lord, even though we don't always understand exactly what's happening, you know, specifically, Lord, you still speak to our hearts. You still give us understanding. Lord, help us to have relationships like the relationship that David had with Jonathan, a, a relationship that's built on love, but mostly it's, it's got that love of you, God, that, that binds it together. Help that to be true of our friendships and our relationships and our marriages. And Lord, everything else that you have going on in our life, help that to be the commonality between us. Lord, help us to stay humble in the midst of opposition. When people are throwing spears at us, Lord, help us to, to humble ourselves and to become peacemakers um, rather than war, people of war. Lord, help us to, to see uh, the situations through your eyes, Lord, and to walk in the way that you would have us to walk. Lord, let us or help us to let you fight our battles. And Lord, help us to draw closer to you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.